Hello, you are with Love of Learning and I'm Dian Stanchev. Today we are going to talk about how to develop our children in a natural way so that they don't need to go to the doctor and stay away from chronic diseases, which is a very common issue in the USA and not only. How to educate our children to be healthy and be disease-free? I think this is the most important topic for each parent, how to keep diseases away from our children. Our guest today is Susie Harris from the United States, an applied kinesiology chiropractor, natural health physician, and the owner of Cedarwood Natural Health Center in South Burlington, Vermont. She has a holistic approach to healing and using food as medicine, preventing our children from getting sick in the first place, which is an approach I highly value and wish more and more doctors would like to prevent diseases from happening. The only downside is that doctors will not have clients and pharmacy industry will decline, but I think it's something we can cope with. With her podcast, Next 7, she is aiming at helping people to take ownership of their health and their children's, children's health. Thank you, Susie, for being with us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Uh, what would you think about a world where doctors search for ways to prevent diseases instead of just prescribing pharmacy products for masking the symptoms? Yeah, I mean, that's, that would be a beautiful world, wouldn't it? <laughs> I would say, um, to me, in the 20 years that I've been practicing as a natural health physician, I find what's missing is sharing the microphone, you know? because it's not about getting rid of medical. They're so amazing and talented and incredible in the areas where they're well and deeply trained in areas that I would not want, I would be referring over to them. Um, but when it comes to the functional medicines, like you're talking about, like understanding how the body works and you know, doctor in Latin actually means teacher. So it's really about teaching people how your body works and what brings it up and what drags it down. And when you incur an imperfect world, which is absolutely perfect, <laughs> that it's not perfect. Um, how do you work with your body to keep pace with the challenges that you might face based on your lifestyle and things like that? Um, so, yeah, I mean, my, my dream world would be Let's say, for example, someone has a child who's having stomach trouble, maybe skin trouble, bedwetting, and they go to the doc and the doctor does an exam and says, geez, I don't really see anything wrong here. Instead of saying, why don't we give him this medication or that medication as a guess, why don't they say, here's a list of practitioners and physicians who have another way of looking since we've ruled out pathology here today, why don't you line up with one of these guys and see if you can get a little more intricate information that might help you work this out. If it doesn't come back in a couple of months and let me look again and collaborate with your colleagues who are equally trained as deeply and as effectively as you are. We're all real health practitioners and um, yeah, collaboration would be beautiful. So maybe it will be a good idea to all the doctors to connect to each other and have some kind of understanding how they should navigate like you, what you're saying. It's a very good approach. And yep. 
Is there something like that already in your community, like doctors getting together and discussing topics and transferring? You know, in? Not, not formally enough, you know, and, it, and as we've been in this class together for this podcast, I've realized that um, what would probably be really impactful in my community is to gather my posse of doctors who think like you and I are talking right now, but we're pretty much individually in our practices, you know, on the front lines helping people and it's, there's not a lot of time left over for trying to take on another big project. But I think as a group, it would be profound if I used my podcast to interview people and then you'd have recordings that you could send to a local doc and say, hey, we're talking about you. Why don't you come on, you know, and uh, have this expanded dialogue that is about being the healthcare providers in our communities. What does that mean? That will be a great start to build a community around, yeah. Right. So, so what is the function of health physician and how your skills can be used with the children? You mean the way in which I'm practicing? Yes. Ah, well, so as a chiropractor, um, you know, we pay attention to the, the, the spine and the ability for the spine to move as it should, as well as the cranial sacral kind of, that's another story we could get into later if you want, but removing any restrictions in the spine joints and so things can move as they are designed to move takes a stress off of the nervous system and it allows the nervous system to then work more effectively which means you're regulating your heart and blood pressure and digestion and immune system all the things that the nervous system is a part of running your hormone balance so chiropractic was where i came in to my profession um, nutrition is a part of it, talking to people about, you know, if you want to get good function out of your body, you have to fuel it up with something that actually delivers some, you know, nutritive value. So nutrition, body work, freeing up the spine, getting the nervous system flowing, which then increases circulation and all these other health benefits. A lot of people know chiropractic to be for head pain, you know, headaches or neck pain. And of course we help people with those things too. But inside that chiropractic training though, I did a specialized training that taught me how to use muscle testing to assess the body for chiropractic. And it's very simple. If you have a strong muscle, like I might use uh, someone's straightened arm. If I push on their arm and it's strong, we know we've got a muscle we can work with. If I do something to stress the body, like I wouldn't do this, but if I pinch someone kind of hard, the nervous system has a fight or flight reaction. And during that time, the arm will go weak, but it's, it's not a weak muscle. It's a nervous system reaction to a stimulus that caused the system to shift and the arm lost strength for 10 to 15 seconds. So I know that's a lot of words for your question, but if you have a strong arm and I then push on a joint in your back, if that joint is fine, when I push it, it won't irritate your nervous system 
and the arm will stay strong. But if it is an area that's out of balance and I push into it and challenge it, that can irritate the nervous system and the arm will go weak. So I can see where a person needs to be adjusted. Um, and I'm telling you this because it leads me to the next layer of training that I did with the nutrition response testing. And there's a secondary, it's also called autonomic response testing. Uh, Dr. Diederich Klinghart, he's a German physician. He's there in the UK with you guys. Um, really functional medical doctor who's bridged the gap between the two very well. You can use the strength of the arm to test acupuncture alarm points that are connected to organs. So if you have a strong arm and I'm touching over the sinus, maybe the tonsils, the thyroid, lungs, if I touch over a point of an organ that's irritated by something, it's gonna irritate the nervous system and the arm will go weak. So it's very simple physics. Sounds, you sounds, know? sounds very interesting. Uh, I would like to try this on me. Yeah, so, and it's extremely accurate. It's amazing. Um, so if you have a strong arm and let's say I touch over your liver and the arm goes weak, we know something's bothering the liver I then take homeopathic tincture samples. I can use these homeopathic vials to do what's called resonance testing. So if the liver goes weak and I bring my homeopathic metals kit, aluminum, lead, you know, mercury, the frequencies of these metals toward the body if the liver is irritated because of the metals, bringing that kit near matches something there and it changes the muscle testing to strong. So once you find something that's weak, you use these kits to see part of why. Is it a metal toxicity? Is it a fungus or a parasite? Is it a food? Um, so that would help you build your plan if it's mercury, let's say, I would then start testing, frequency testing, the, the remedies that would also strengthen the liver. So if I test uh, chlorella and it doesn't strengthen the liver, chlorella would help pull mercury, but not for this person. So it's very specific. Okay, try cilantro. Well, that strengthened the liver good, we're going to use that for this person to move this mercury out of their body. So we can talk about, I'm going to stop talking because I feel like I'm rambling. No, no, it's, but, not, uh, it's, it's really interesting because I, what I'm doing at the moment is exactly what you're saying. I'm trying to cleanse my liver and I'm using uh -huh. cilantro. Uh, I'm using, I was using chlorella, chlorella, but now I'm using more spirulina. Beautiful. And barley grass powder. Smart. And, and blueberries every morning. That sounds really great. I mean, the thing about the muscle testing is you're someone who's healthy. I can see by looking at you. Um, so you can do a generalized thing and it's perfectly perfect. It works great. Other people who might have um, more imbalances, they try the smart things, but they're not getting their issue to move. So in the muscle testing, we might pick up 
oh, the liver actually wants this product and this product is for thinning the bile. So it's very specific. If we don't thin the bile, the liver flushing herbs aren't able to clear the liver as well. So you get very specific dynamics with each person of maybe the liver isn't what we target. The kidneys might need support to take stress off the liver. So it'll move you around to where the body's asking for uh, support. Isn't that crazy? It's, 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 it's really interesting. And I hear about it for the first time and uh, I'm really, really interested. And I would like to find a practitioner around me. Yes, <laughs> so, I can try to help you with that. Yeah, so how can I find, find someone? In my, in my life, I've been researching health and well-being for the last 12 years, but I've never heard about this before. I don't think it's well, very popular. Isn't it interesting? I mean, you know, our, uh, I feel like the human race hasn't been ready to understand the value of energy medicine to the degree that they would trust it in their healthcare. They might like it as a spa treatment, you know, but to trust some of the science within energy medicine to diagnose more accurately because it's actually going to pick up on function rather than just naming a disease. But, you know, I would wonder, and you and I can communicate after today, but I think because Diedrich Klinghart is there in London, I think he's in London. Okay. Um, he's an amazing doc. And he is, when I trained to be a nutrition response testing practitioner with Freddie Yulon, um, Diederik was his teacher. So I've now, because we're all online with all this Corona stuff, I've gotten a chance to study directly with Diederik, uh, Dr. Klinghart. He's a brainiac. He's so smart and creative. And, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people in your area that have trained with him. Okay. Okay. Because you, you brought, you brought out uh, this uh, Corona situation oh now yeah do, mm -hmm. do you know have you seen cases around you and do you know how you can treat them with your energy way of healing and is there any different approach you've seen mm -hmm. in your practice well you know i would say as a chiropractic physician in vermont my license doesn't allow me to diagnose and treat disease so i don't get to say if i've diagnosed any cases. Um, with my testing though, I do have some frequency vials that's, that are attempting to pick up on the virus. And, you know, Diederik and his group, uh, Dr. Klinghart and his group uh, provide these different slides and, and CDs with frequencies on them that you can resonance match a pathogen in a person's body, it's kind of, it's kind of incredible. But anyway, um, my personal experience in my office, because I'm not a medical office, is I've seen people coming through with what seems like the common cold flu kind of thing. I haven't had people here who got hit with such severity where you're not getting oxygen across the uh, tissues in the lungs. Like this virus can hit people in the lungs like that. I know of a few people in my community who have gotten ill enough to be hospitalized and they've all recovered. 
Um, and I've had some patients that we think probably as early as last October, they were people who don't get sick that often. And they went down so hard. Everybody was like, wow, this was took me out for like a week or two. And that's not typical. We kind of think they might have bumped into it back then. Um, am I answering your question? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was good enough. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so in your practice, how do you approach children that come and do you deal with them differently? Hmm. You know, before I answer that, I realized that I didn't share with you what I know about treatments that seem to be working well on Corona. Is it okay if I go there? Of course, of course. Thanks. Um, there are some studies out there and I can share with you um, some of the doctor's names later, but um, we are seeing very effective treatments, different doctors doing a little variation between them. But like, for example, one doctor was using uh, IV vitamin C with D and zinc, a particular antibiotic that's for preventing walking pneumonia. And he was nebulizing or inhaling vaporized um, steroids. So people that were down hard that they thought were headed for ventilators, he was pulling them out in a week or two time with his protocols. And there are other doctors using hydroxychloroquine if it's early. Oh, geez, I shouldn't have said that. You might want to That'll be an interesting, uh, that might shut your video down if that goes through. <laughs> But anyway, ivermectin, there are some other um, herbs, antiparasitics, and uh, natural ways that people are seeing they're treating this quite well. I just feel very confused why the journalists aren't rushing to get that story. Yeah. Maybe because it's completely not true, but I don't think so. Yeah, so. basi yeah, basically, we still don't know exactly how to treat it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are doctors doing well treating it, but it's not making it into the mainstream the National Institutes of Health who would set it as the protocol for the country, you know. Anyway, I don't yeah. know if that was more than you wanted. Yes, perfect. Thank you. Uh, so do, do you think that parents should also be proactive for preventing diseases in their children? And how should they do that? Should for parents sure. learn more about how to yeah. stop? Yeah. Well, I can say when people come in with their kids here, um, if they're having any sort of gut issues or skin or bedwetting or attention problems, we the first thing that generally comes up on children is food, quality of food. So, you know, if people are in a situation where they didn't realize organic food made such a difference and they're eating a lot of conventional foods, um, the pesticides, I will pick up pesticides with my testing and we just do a little bit of, we don't have to do a lot of work on these small people because they're so healthy and beautiful that it really just is shifting the food away from conventional farming and more toward uh, pesticide-free and GMO-free organic stuff. That seems to help shift things quite a bit. And then, you know, just kind of educating if they don't know that um, you want to be doing mostly whole foods, you know, 
we can get into a fast paced lifestyle and start, we didn't realize how much of our food has switched to processed foods. And that includes organic gluten-free things like pasta and bread and crackers and cereals and, you know, all the different, um, all the different, uh, I'm sorry, I just got a weird message on my computer. Sorry about that. Um, taking it more toward, you know, proteins, if you're not a vegetarian, like chicken and fish and, you know, but they should be coming from clean farms as much as you can. So you're not getting the hormones or the GMO feed that those animals were being fed. So proteins like that, beans and nuts and seeds, and then definitely healthy fat. We want everyone eating fat, especially children. Their nervous systems are still developing. So the fats that are in, you know, meats and eggs and butter and olive oil and avocados, you know, nut butters to some degree. So yes to healthy fats, yes to protein. And then most of the carbs, carbohydrates coming from uh, lower sugar fruits and, and vegetables. And, you know, we have a whole, uh, there's a, a group here that I just interviewed on my podcast that has created a curriculum for food, getting it into the primary school settings so children can understand, hey, if I'm feeling jumpy and I can't calm my body down, you know, what, what food helps me calm down? And if I'm tired and feeling, mm, what food brings my body up? You know, it's really been fascinating to watch how they're bringing that education into the kids and then the kids are bringing it home. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Right. Because most of the time the parents don't know much about food. Mm -hmm. so, right. So, so, so yeah, yeah, foods and I would say quality of water is another one because if you live in a city and you're using municipal waters, not filtering out the fluoride and the chlorine and those things really does have a, a big difference over time on the gut microbiome, which then... As, as people may know, when your gut microbiome is off, you start to run into other chronic, low-grade, slow-building, other health problems like brain fog and chronic sinus stuff and poor digestion. And, you know, it seems like maybe it's a food I'm eating, but sometimes maybe it's you got to check your water out. So for water, I'm using, um, I'm using a distiller. Mm-hmm which is also a good way. It just evaporates the water and all the yeah. heavy metals remain out. Beautiful. Of it. Yeah. And then do you, um, I know some people will say, and again, it depends on everybody's bodies are different and how your diet is. If you're doing reverse osmosis or distilled water, it's you're stripping the minerals too, right? Yes, yes. But the minerals shouldn't be coming from the water. They should coming from, like you say, whole foods. There you and go. This, this exactly. is where you should aim, yes. Yep. Okay, uh, good. Yeah. We are on the same page. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm very careful about what I read online because there is a lot of propaganda there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's it's really interesting question. Uh, there is a, we have over 50% of children in the USA with chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's happening and what's the main root cause? Is it the toxicity, like you said? Yeah, you know, I would say, 
Yeah, it's I would say the the main thing is the quality of food. I really I might be trying to simplify it, but I feel if you know, you think about a a newborn babe if they're nursing, which is awesome, if if mom isn't eating organically, there's a lot of uh hormones and toxins from conventional farming that make their way into dairy and meats and eggs and things like that and the grains so I don't want any mom to feel afraid that if she's not eating perfectly organically like she's not healthy and then her baby's not going to be unhealthy her baby won't be healthy because I don't think it's that cut and dry but if if there's a babe that's having some issues you would want to start paying attention to those details even more because uh what comes through breast milk and then busy life. Maybe we're going to formulas. Where did that come from? You know, and uh, then moving into baby foods and all that good stuff. Where did that come from is a really important question to ask, understand what's in it. Cause we need nutrient dense, toxin free food. I totally agree with this. We should be very careful what we eat how we mm -hmm. eat and of yeah. course when we eat how much we yeah. eat <laughs> and i think to answer your question in the us um you know we we have no regulation on uh the use of roundup and glyphosate our crops i think are pretty full of it and um i you know i i, I feel like i'm getting more and more simplified about my approach on and being a health physician here because i feel like if that were fixed if we weren't using that the other imperfections of being human beings on the planet might not be as intense i think we would have to watch waterways you know clearing waterways but I, i'm not sure i feel like the corporations big pharma big food all that. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of domination over uh, the decision making of what we're able to do. But uh, I feel it's changing. I feel some I feel some energy coming up. More people who think like we do are kind of coming up a little and shaking off the fog and being like, wait a second, who's in charge of the agriculture of a country? And if we know through our studies and science that we're seeing lymphoma cancer from glyphosate, why are we still spraying it on food? I really would like to talk to who's in charge. <laughs> very, good, very, very good question. Yeah. And maybe someone is selling it as well. Mm. True to that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it. I don't know, I have a fairy tale dream that we, and I'm starting with uh, New England and hoping to be a United States beginning place that we should be farming organically. It's a conscious choice to not do that. And so why are we making that choice? It really isn't based in logic at all. It's based in profits, I would say. And yeah, it's not something that happened overnight as well. Right. And I think that move, it's not like I just thought of this movement. I think the movement's already been there for a while, but more people might be joining in to help push the sanity forward a little bit. I, I hope so. 
it's frustrating, right? Like when you kind of see something that's super illogical, but it is allowed to continue. But now if we think about this question a, a bit more, what each one of us can do right now? Mm. So what will happen if we all start growing our own food? What will happen then? Well, I do think it's important to get a, a blend if you can. You know, not everyone can grow all the food they're going to eat. But you can throw a garden in yes. and have some, you know. And if you are someone who has the space and time, definitely decentralizing has happened with our access to food. Like we've, we've pushed it all out for other people to do it for us, which I think is kind of not the greatest idea. Um, so garden planting for sure, but I would say, you know, as much as you can begin finding out who your farmers are around you mm -hmm. and how are they practicing. Sometimes they're not certified organic because it's a pricey thing to pull off, but they're mm -hmm. performing organically. So knowing who those farmers are and uh, building relationships with them and starting to source yourself from those farmers, it supports them to keep doing what they're doing and it helps your health. And uh, that would be something for sure. This is what I'm doing at the moment as well. I love it. I'm supporting. The other thing I would say is find joy, you know, relax. Once you put your attention on these things, realize these are the areas that need change and we are waking up and changing them. So get outside, breathe air, get some earth under your feet and remember who you are. Just relax and love what's in front of you because Otherwise, you'll worry yourself to death. <laughs> <laughs> so next seven is the name of your podcast. Uh, why did you decide to start it? And what is the purpose? Hmm. Thank you for asking me that. Um, you know, I started it because I felt like the impact I was having on my community of people that I've been helping for 20 years wasn't enough. Um, so I felt like I needed a broader platform to be able to share information that I run across. Um, I like it to be a dialogue, not a preaching luxury thing. So I thought it would be great to have like a podcast format where I can bring on people who've direct experiences in the areas we're talking about that can share their stories And that feels easier to hear as opposed to, you know, according to the research product, you know, if you have an actual being who can tell a story around what you and I are saying, what we do to the soil matters, what we bring into our bodies as food and water matters. It matters for us. It matters for the other beings on the planet and the next seven generations, um, I have a removed lineage of Cherokee in my family and I feel it deeply on a, on an energy level that, uh, you know, indigenous mindsets would say you, you should be behaving now in ways that leave the next seven generations, a world that they can thrive in. And, um, our culture here in the United States, I would say, we need to fold our elders into that conversation as well, because we have so many elders sitting in living facilities, being fed terribly, not good foods, not to criticize the people who are doing that work because 
I really respect and love those beings that are trying to help with our elders in that way. But anyway, that was I put going the to, podcast That was together. going to be my next question about the elderly. Uh, yeah. Do you think it's a part of the culture, how we treat our elderly nowadays? Yeah, I think it goes back to that. We've, we've shipped everything out and in, including taking care of our elders. Like, you know, not that I, I'm a person who loves my space. So <laughs> I love the way I live right now. I don't have my whole family up in my house with me, my elders or anything like that. But with you think about it, it used to be that the elders would live in the home with the family. And so that really helped with uh, caring for the children while the working age people were out working. And it was just a really symbiotic way to be in, in balance with each other. And everyone has a purposeful sense of belonging and, uh, and, a, and a role that it makes a difference in everyone's life and the group, you know? So I think we've kind of shopped out our elders to facilities they're over medicated they haven't been being treated with functional medicine probably most of their life and you know we're accepting it as a way that's the way it goes you know at the end of life you're probably gonna need some assisted living because the family can't really take that on it's a lot so I feel it's super important to um, if for now if this is the structure for now then those folks need to be being treated with functional health care, not just medical, and also their foods and the way that they're eating should be something that demonstrates how blessed they are, how amazing we are to have them on the planet still. <laughs> yeah, because the elderly have a great, great wisdom and mm -hmm. we should be using them for something more than just sending them in homes and yeah. forgetting about them. Yeah. How, how do you think we should address this? So well, yeah. you know, I'm hoping that one thing that I'm trying to do is with my podcast at some point, hoping that it might uh, draw attention to grants or funding and that sort of thing that can start to address you know how they have farm to table, bringing organic farming foods into the schools, into the cafeterias of schools and different facilities. We can be doing that in our elder living communities. We just need to do it. <laughs> so I am gonna probably be connecting with a chef in the area here that has done a lot of the groundwork for bringing foods into the schools and kind of speak with him about that uh, structure and the organizational process that that was how can we shift the model to include the elder living facilities so that we're getting real food to our elders it's good that we touch this topic because uh, i think there's so much we can do with uh, the, our elderly so they can live a good good life for example like you started with um, bringing good food and nutrition and maybe treating them, like you said, with functional medicine and see which types of organs needs to be treated. For example, probably the liver is the number one organ that needs to be treated. I think that's for everyone, but especially as you go get older, it gets more and more toxic. So something else we can do with them. And the other thing is brain activities. Yeah. 
brain activities. So there, there is so much things yeah, that should be happening and the government should be doing this. And then when we get them up to good health, they can be beneficial back to society as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, I, I feel there's, it would, I don't know how to make this happen, but the curriculum for the medical community needs a look needs needs to we should be taking a look at that <laughs> i think i agree with you because if the the government is not doing anything we as people can do something about it as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah, and why, yeah. Why do you think why do you think there is no curriculum about nutrition at school and should there be one i mean for sure i i wish there was one um you know, the only place I have been able, my, I, this is a question I've wrapped my brain around for my whole career because people who are medical doctors are beautiful, amazing, intelligent people that have gone through, it's not an easy road to train to be a doctor. Um, I, I mean, I'm just gonna share what comes from the mentors I study under and what they say to me is that we have 90% is what's been said to me of the funding for, for uh, medical training centers and colleges, it comes from the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. So we have big pharma has a stranglehold on the curriculums that these doctors are seeing. Now, when I say that, I think, well, yeah, but they're smart people. They're in communities with doctors who are more naturopathic or functional. It's not like they don't know there's more information. So I, on one hand, I'm like, the curriculum should change. And on the other, I'm like, but the people who come through the training should expand their interest, you know? Like, anyway, but yeah, I think that their training is not there because of, uh, it's a paradigm that looks to name the imbalance with a, a disease name and then pair up what surgery or medication would manage that. And that's kind of seeing the body like a mechanical thing that you go in and manipulate to bring to a place of wellness, as opposed to the other side of thinking, which is, you know, something about this body isn't running quite well. Let's figure out the factors that are affecting it. What might it be missing nutrients? What might be insulting it, toxins, you know, and work with clearing those barriers off of the body so it can heal itself. Because I really can't imagine the smartest being on the planet could outperform the intelligence of this body. It is pristine and amazing. And usually if there's an imbalance, it's because it's not getting what it needs or something's choking off its ability to do what it does. So I feel like that was a really long-winded answer. Are you okay? Of course, of course. So, <laughs> and uh, let, let, let's talk about uh, school where our children go to. What do you think is missing in school education and how should parents do their homeschooling? What topics should, they, should we cover at home with our children? For example, mm -hmm. like nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would say this beautiful curriculum that I've seen. Um, Carol McQuillan is a retired third grade teacher she's I think she's probably I interviewed her actually on my podcast it's the the episode is called uh 
nourish to flourish. And it's a curriculum that she has gotten into school settings. I think it's grade three, four through six or something. I, I'm probably getting that wrong. But yes, teaching the kids about food. Where does it come from? Um, the land. Like how, does, how do you grow something on the land? And what things would keep you able to grow and what things would kind of not let it grow like how do you tend to something so teaching them how where food comes from and the also how food affects their bodies which would mean a little bit of anatomy without getting super over their heads with it but you can bring it into you know animation to teach a young child how their belly works and how their lungs work and you know what their skin is and all that cool stuff. And then how does that nutrient stuff and the water affect how their body is able to do the cool things we just showed them. Um, so I think bringing that in is a big deal. I definitely think uh, room to play, room to have artistic expression and music and movement and outside time is imperative. Uh, I say our schools have kind of gotten super, I don't know how it is over there, but it's a lot of just sitting and false lighting and not playing and creating. And so I just feel leaving room is so important. I think it's the same everywhere. It's the same everywhere. Mm. Just studying, studying stuff that usually you don't need to use when you grow up, mm -hmm. for example, things like uh, how to do, what to do with your money, how to invest, it's never touched. Like, right. you, yeah, you don't, you don't know how your body works. Mm -hmm. You don't know how your emotions work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every all that you need to, I think, you need to learn by yourself. But no one needs it. Thinks it's important at all. Mm -hmm. So, it's interesting you say that. That would be. Another thing I would put in is um, social thinking and like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just the, the calming exercises. Mindfulness. Yes, mindfulness training. Thank you. Yeah, like my partner is a teacher for special education in the school system here. And they she was able to work in a mindfulness section and some of the most struggling children, they would show up for it hands down every time and it just changed things. And then that gave them a regulated body space to come from, to have conversations about emotions and feelings and appropriate ways to be mad and, upset with someone and you know but not ruin that we're still connected and you know just how do you handle all those emotions coming through those different ages uh without being just stuffed and maybe that will address the adhd issue we have everywhere a lot of that together right i mean i think the food affects it i think getting outside and moving your body affects it and your ability to 
and the, sh- the length of time, boy, when you go past a certain length of time, now you're just driving fight or flight in people. Yeah. They can't hear you anymore. It's too much. <laughs> so, so, so what do you think is the perfect or maybe the, can you give us an example of a good one, one day diet for a five-year-old? Oh, for a five-year-old. Or does it matter how old they are? Oh, I think it's based on their palate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, before five, I would have made sure that I introduced vegetables before fruit when they were babies. So okay. they didn't get so all about the sugary taste and then anything not sugary doesn't taste good. Okay. So um, a five-year-old, I would probably do uh, in the morning either an organic oatmeal with berries and butter and a little bit of maple syrup. And um, I would probably, that would probably be breakfast, you know, it'd be so loaded with nuts and seeds and things. But if they didn't love that, because textures are a thing for little kids, it might just be the oatmeal by itself with the syrup and butter. So it tastes so good. And then the fruit is on the side You know, they kind of don't like things to mix sometimes, maybe nuts and seeds. Scrambled eggs, you know, with even with bacon or something like that, if they if they like that. And again, from clean farms, definitely. Um, and sometimes maybe just a smoothie with, uh, I'm not a big fan of dairy in small kids. It can tend to bring a lot of phlegm into the upper respiratory. So, but if it's a little bit of, you know, goat or sheep milk-based yogurts with organic, maybe, or oat-based uh, granola with fruits. So I'm not a big fan of a lot of grains for kids either because it can start to create skin problems. Um, but they also need carbs and fructose and stuff. We don't want them to be on a low-carb, low-sugar diet. But uh, so that would probably be my breakfast And for lunch, you know, if they're five, I would say, again, we want protein in there. If they're not going to do chicken salad, tuna salad with maybe some organic corn chips um, and some fruit, um, maybe you're doing a healthy version, hopefully, of like fish sticks with, uh, again, some sort of vegetable and fruit. And if it's, you know, dipping sauces seem to be a big fun thing for kids, vegetables that are cut in shapes that you can dip into different dips and stuff. So it's a good way to get vegetables in. Um, wraps, I guess, but I'm not, again, I, it'd be great to not do a lot of uh, the bready stuff, but with a wrap, you can always just cut the bulky ends off and they get all the good stuff you wrapped in it, you know, organic thin sliced chicken or turkey or whatever. And then you can sneak your vegetables into the, the <laughs> into the sandwich and then soups this time of year. If your kid would like a soup, you know, and paleo, if you're someone who has the time, paleo recipes for breads and scones that are fun to dip in soups So it's not too much uh, processed grain. You can do it sometimes, but diversify it a little bit with um, you know, some of the other more non-grain, healthy fat, low sugar 
type breads that you can have along with soups. Lunch kind of transfers to dinner, right? There, you can move it around a little bit. So dinner, should it be lighter or lunch should be the main one or? You know, for kids, I let their appetites decide. Okay. Because they usually will stop eating when they're done and they'll keep eating if they're hungry. So unless I had a kid who was having trouble with bedwetting or um, couldn't sleep, then I might play around with less food at dinner. But generally with littles, I just say they will decide. <laughs> okay. I, I like to, to give also dried fruits. Dried fruits mm -hmm. are really good. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say if, it, you know, if you're doing it alongside of other things, but um, watching out for sugar content, like dried fruits are going to be higher in sugar. Fruit juices are going to be higher in sugar. So for kids, if they, you know, dried fruits on foods and stuff is great. But if it's like a pile that they're eating, mm -hmm. that can be too much, too much sugar. <laughs> too much, yes. Right. Uh, that's true for things like if you're only giving them fruits like banana, mango, pineapple, and all those higher sugar tropical fruits, that's not great. You can start to get some gut trouble. But if you have a little bit of those alongside of like apples and berries and a little less high sugar fruits, and I'll have them dilute the fruit juices, like a very little amount of juice to the rest water so they can enjoy a fruit juice, but not so concentrated that it's a big sugar blast because you'll have to peel them off the ceiling. <laughs> so, so which foods uh, should we avoid for children and how to deal with constant bad foods being offered at the nursery and schools? Mm. Well, I, the foods that I generally watch for are of course, sugar, when you're talking candy, cakes and cookies and pies and all that kind of sugar. Um, and then dairy is one to watch. I think when you're doing harder cheeses like Parmesan and Asiago and like that, it's not a problem. Cheddar some, but if you're doing a lot of cheese and a lot of yogurt and a lot of milk, it starts to be a belly problem. And also uh, I, I've seen it become upper respiratory challenging and all of that. So sugar and dairy. And then I would say um, not too much wheat. I don't really think that there's all the celiac concern as much as it's just, if you're going to do grains, it's really helpful if they're sprouted and mm -hmm. fermented. Um, but not everybody wants to go into that. So if you're not doing all that, I would say that should be a, a low on the quantities, more whole foods and a little bit of that stuff. And when it comes to the school thing, what I tell my parents is, you know, just really be without being, you know, stressed out by it, be really on it at home, you know, because if they're really rocking it at home and eating, you know, pretty well, what happens at school isn't going to ruin it within reason, like the, the child who's going to school and eating uh, a donut or a bagel in the morning when they get there and then snack is, you know, goldfish and then lunch is a sandwich and something, I'd say if you can send your own food to school, that's the better way to go because 
that what I just described as what might come through the school, uh, what they provide over time, that will be too much. Okay, so uh, you, you said about some foods that make us calm and give us mm. energy. So which food makes the body feel calm? Which food brings the body energy and which food makes us feel slow and irritable? Mm. You know, I think uh, foods that calm are definitely like um, protein and fat snacks. You know, like um, if you have like a little... Uh, let's say chicken breast, thin sliced with a piece of avocado and maybe some red pepper rolled up. You've got protein and fat and it calms the nervous system down. It's, it's gonna be a blood sugar regulating, really. Um, I would say warm things, right? Like warm soups and um, warm like squashes and things like that like those are calming they taste good they're soothing you know so it can kind of calm if your child likes teas you can certainly go there right so chamomile teas and uh different mint based teas that kind of just relax the body and as far as bringing energy up i would maybe again the protein and fat is helpful but i would add like fruit sugars like blueberries and strawberries and kiwis and you know bringing that up and um, smoothies are a great way to go you know you can make it seem like it's a chocolate shake or a strawberry shake but it's got spirulina in there (laughs) a few other little things that can be uh, nutrient superfoods that can get kind of blended into something that seems like a treat okay yep it's a good it's a good point mm-hmm. uh, but uh what what i've recently read about is that what the brain actually needs is not protein it's a uh, glucose and it's the glucose that comes from fruits and for example from sweet potatoes and butternut squash like you said but when you mix this type of foods with fats then it's the glucose doesn't get very well distributed mm-hmm. is there some reason about that or what do, what's your opinion you know i've seen over the years different dynamics get explored for what could be interfering with better absorption and and food combining or not food combining and things like that um I have to say, I almost get to cheat to help advise a person because I would use muscle testing to understand that person's body. Um, but I, I typically like to see people combine food unless when they do it, they don't feel very well because that might be their body needs something a little different. But my, my thinking is if you're eating just carbs and fruits, um, it can cut out on you energy wise fairly quickly. So you have your energy come up, but it doesn't stay up. It would if you were doing things like sweet potato and things that had uh, complex carbs and and fiber to them. But uh, to me, I think if we eat a little bit of protein along with the carbs, it takes a while to eat there to uh, get the nutrients out of protein. So 
It can make you tired if you eat just protein, like uh, a meat with some nuts can sometimes bring your energy down because you're just by itself. If you combine it with vegetables and fruits, you're going to get the fructose and the um, more bioavailable sugars up front. And as they're kind of tapering off, that protein is kind of showing up. And I would say fat levels helping absorption. But I could see an argument for keeping the fats away from if, if a person was eating the way I just described and they didn't feel well after eating or they not just belly aches, but like tired instead of energized, then I would maybe explore mm -hmm. not letting the fats be in the stomach with the uh, proteins and the carbs. So, so we should examine ourselves every day, how we feel after a meal. And if we feel tired or bloating, there is something wrong in that combination of foods, right? Yeah. I mean, I generally encourage my people to do a food journal for me and they just write down anything they eat or drink. They track how much water they're taking in. And I would watch it over the course of a week. And then you can write your symptoms for the day along the day that you, uh, the, you know, each day you would report how you feel. But sometimes if you have a day that you're not feeling well, you need to look at the day before and even the day before and how it might be affecting the body to see how that's going. I generally though, the way that I work with the foods uh, with people is, um, I think if we're doing a good job of hydrating, moving our bodies each day, at least 20 minutes, you know, and getting good sleep, and our food is from fairly good resource, you know, clean food, keeping the whole food to process food ratio in a good spot. I don't think we have to micromanage um, things like food combining and being, you know, too regimented, you know, as long as we're kind of watching for good protein intake, good vegetables and fruit intake and uh, fats and keeping the processed foods and blatant sugars to low. Um, we don't have to be perfect, but 80% eating clean, 20% goofing around usually keeps people feeling pretty good. And uh, if, if they're not doing well on that diet, then we're going in to understand where is the barrier, what's happening that's, that's keeping them from uh, feeling good on a mostly balanced diet. Okay, thanks. Thanks for this thorough answer. So mm -hmm. uh, what are the main differences that you have noticed in your practice between the people and children as well who are eating organic and the ones who don't? Mm. Well, I think the folks who are eating more organically seem to have better weight management. They're not as heavy. Um, mm -hmm they have fewer immune challenges. They seem to have a stronger immune system. Like they don't get as many allergy complaints or um, seasonal colds and flus as often. And they don't complain of stomach trouble as much like bloating or, you know, um, irregular stools and things like that. A lot less, and especially the younger children uh, 
where the food is in a fairly good place, you know, very few ear infection and upper respiratory problems. Um, I think better focus, less, less time homesick from school and things like that. Okay. So basically stick to organic mostly. What I've, what, what I've learned is uh, it's, it's much, much better to, of course, it's much better to grow your own food, but it's much better to have the food just recently picked and eat it straight away instead of eating something that has come all the way from the other part of the world for after two weeks and it loses its nutrition. Yeah, and I think there's also, as a food ages like that, there's a change to the composition that can uh, bring inflammation when we eat it. Like, you know, leftovers in the um, refrigerator too. If it's, some people would say, don't eat leftovers at all. I would say, you know, by the, by the second, third day, I would not be eating that. I think mm -hmm. it probably has a lot of potential inflammation for you, but that's getting <clears throat> pretty picky. But yeah, I think so much better to get your food local. It is Try yeah. to keep it a clean farm source. And you help also with uh, moving food from one place to another and helping art, helping art. I think it's key for nowadays. Mm -hmm. what yeah. What is your opinion on vaccines? Why heavy metals like mercury connected with chronic diseases are used in the vaccines that we give to our children? Mm. You know, as far as I understand it, the mercury is in there as a preservative so they can make large batches. So, excuse me. You can request a mercury-free vaccine and it would come in a single dose they would draw it there in front of you from a single dose um, container so that's i think it's for profits to use mercury because you can make bigger batches and it just becomes i think more cost effective and there's more profit if you do that it's what i understand from the doctors i study under um Aluminum is in there. It's meant to be an irritant to the nervous system to get it to the immune system to react. You know, they put the um, pathogen, the weakened pathogen in some vaccines in solution. It's not that strong, so the immune system might not see it. So you have to irritate things to get the immune system to look, and then it sees this foreign pathogen and starts to build an immune response is the is the idea okay. um you asked me what i think of vaccines yes yes <laughs> uh i really don't think that what comes through a needle can outperform the body's immune system i'm more curious about the environmental factors that weaken immune systems and create more virulent bugs so if we're getting toxins out of farming practices and we're getting toxicity out of water and we're utilizing functional health care to understand 
what's in our body's way for operating at its best, which means a really awesome immune system, then I don't feel vaccines would be the way to go. Um, I'm not an expert on vaccines. I've only been involved in um, learning about them because I've treated people in my practice who have been vaccine injured. So <clears throat> in trying to protect their rights to choose, if, you know, if their child had an adverse reaction and they don't want to vaccinate anymore, um, I've tried to be involved in some of the um, legal areas where we're trying to protect people's rights to opt out. So you start to hear the arguments of, well, if you're not vaccinated, then you're going to be putting my unvaccinated child at risk who can't get vaccinated and just everybody's arguing and upset around all of it. I have followed like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with Children's Health Defense and Sherry Tenpenny and the people who share the science of different uh, disease challenges that have come through in the world and the ways in which the science that they share shows that we've seen the, the concerned pathogen kind of fizzle out and the vaccine shows up and then the data starts to show, well, because of the vaccine, we eradicated it. Who's telling the truth? I don't know. I have questions. So in my practice, I have people who feel it's important to vaccinate and I have people who absolutely don't want to because of personal experiences they've had. My stance is somewhere in the middle. Um, I'm not, not personally a fan of vaccines, but I respect people's right to choose. So if they vaccinate, I ask them to bring their kids in after and we, um, well, actually before they have, we have them take uh, something to help bind toxicity before the vaccine. And then they come to see me after and we use the muscle testing to get clear, how would we support this body, immune system and detoxification of the uh, vaccine toxins that are in there. So it's a tricky subject. Um, oh, what's, what's the difference before, when you measure the, the kid before, uh, it takes the vaccine and after it takes the vaccine. What's the difference? Mm, well, with the muscle testing, I'm thinking of some people I saw this year after a flu vaccine. Uh, I found in the gut the need for some support around the microbiome that I hadn't seen prior. And... Um, it seemed like lungs, if I remember correctly, we had to use a little um, cilantro with this person to pull the, I picked up the aluminum from the vaccine. So had he not seen me after the vaccine and I saw him a month later, maybe his body would have flushed that out and it's no big deal, or maybe not. Everybody's bodies are different. So um, when I see them so soon after the vaccine, I'm pretty clearly going to pick stuff up because it's so close to after they had it. And it's, uh, it's more preventative to just support their bodies to move it. And then in the other little guy that got a shot, he was younger and smaller. Uh, I picked up inflammation at his brain, but with muscle testing, you pick up things like inflammation at the brain that you would never, he was fine. He didn't feel badly. 
And I'm sure his pediatrician wouldn't have seen anything wrong with him. Um, and again, had I seen him in two, three weeks, that might've been gone. It was his immune system's response. Usually it's the liver needing some support and then you get the liver doing better and it gets inflammation down and the brain stops talking about it. Okay, so, so. Sounds, so it, it makes sense now why we have so many vaccines in the States and why we have over 50% of the children chronic diseases. Yeah. Yeah, the schedule is up, I think, somewhere around 70-something now, doses between birth and getting into uh, college. 70 shots, 7-0. Yeah. It's mu- sometimes it's multiple doses of one vaccine okay. over time. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a good round number. Mm. <laughs> Suppose it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Everybody makes their own choices, I think. Well, that's the thing. You know, I've had to kind of land there because I get, the more I learn, the more frustrated I get about things, about just the, the one size fits all, lots of, lots of challenge to the bodies of these children. Uh, and how do you build a bridge and not cut off the conversation when you have people who are very charged on the other side feeling like it's very important. So I try to stand in the middle to hopefully push more and more trusted data into the hands of people they can decide for themselves and protect people's right to choose. I think it's a very good choice, yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, if you are able to tell someone who would otherwise never hear what you have to say about how to keep our children healthy, what would you tell them today? How to keep your children healthy? Yes. Oh, I would say love them and kiss them a lot. For one thing. So, so <laughs> good know, emotions, yeah. We have to slow down and make sure we're spending time really showing what love is. And being outside and moving our bodies and being playful. You know, a lot of times I think it's the taking care of our own stress so that we can be sure to carve out space for regulated energy in the home and in the ways we talk with each other and behave with each other. Uh, that feels big to me. And then, you know, um, take an interest in showing your child the beauty of land, nature, and forests and how things grow and how wonderful bugs are and, you know, all of the things that, you know, they can hear and understand it. So teaching them the relationships between the bugs and how this thing is growing and um, the foods that grow, being a part of uh, picking them and, or maybe shopping if you're doing it that way. And, making some sort of playfulness around trying new things and understanding how food affects the body. And uh, I think depending on the age, water is a good one too, to make sure that they're understanding how to keep their bodies hydrated because, uh, you know, you can make it so playful with kids, you know, oh my goodness, you seem so upset. I wonder, let's sit down and have some water together. 
And then if they do better, you pointed out like, wow, it seems like after you drank that, things got different, you know? So just keeping your child healthy by just regulating their environment that you're, you're creating with your own mood and your own teachings. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the main things. Find yourself a, an alternative. Uh, I don't like to call it alternative. Actually, I would call it classical medicine because it's been around for thousands of years. Um, find a functional healthcare physician to be on your team. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a medical professional on your team, but it's good to have uh, both. Thank you. It's, it's an amazing answer. It's very, very mm. full. And one last question before we finish. Uh, can you share a couple of educating exercises, games we could play with our children? You mentioned where one, that one exercise that you can check with your kids, their rates, level of feeling good. I really mm. like this one. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, um, boy, that's a good one. I'm not necessarily a an educator isn't that funny but so you're asking you, me i think you're doing very well the last the last two questions the last answer was amazing and this one checking their uh, level of feeling good i think i've heard for the first time as well ah so it's kind of like a, a game for them to be able to engage in their own bodies you mean yes yes yeah yeah i i really again i feel like i'm uh singling things down to this one subject but i think it's interesting science and chemistry to be in the kitchen cooking things you know like when you cut a pumpkin open and you see the beautiful color inside and the seeds and you plant a seed and see what that does and when you uh mix it in a mixer it changed from being a square chunk into a you know, smooth. And then after it baked, it changed again, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, I think, wonderment to be seen in the kitchen. And again, you're just showing them the relationship of the earth and land and food and their bodies. Thanks. Uh, th thank you for being with us today. Uh, I think I've learned a lot, a lot. And I would definitely find a practitioner close to me. Uh -huh. Well, thank you so much. And um, it's it was really a pleasure talking to you. And I wish you have more and more clients and you reach more and more people through your podcast and you do this community gathering of all the doctors and helping elderly like you plan. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye.